So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. We'll be looking at the entire chapter. It's been a few weeks since we've been in 1 Samuel. Just to refresh your memory of where we are, Samuel tells the story of the true history of Israel uh, when the kings and the monarch were, were getting established. And Saul was the first king, anointed by Samuel. It has ended up not turning out very well for him, as his pride has led him toward a murderous plot to kill David, who is the other anointed king. And first chapter after chapter after chapter, David seems to be on the run. And Saul coming after him. And chapter 24 begins really a three-chapter, three-part look at David sparing the life of someone. First it's Saul, and then we'll see uh, Nabal in, in chapter 25, and then again he spares Saul again in 26. So there's this running theme with chapter 24, chapter 25, and 26 that we'll see a three-part theme in the next couple of weeks. But here, uh, David has um, escaped from Saul's hand, and now the tables are turning, and, and now David has an opportunity to take Saul's life. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll read the entire chapter. This is God's word. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. And now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? 
And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you've declared this day how you've dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is God's word. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, would you work this morning? Would you raise the dead? Would you soften hearts? Would we feel your presence as we read your word, as we hear it? Would your promises change us, Father? Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus says in Matthew 7, I read it earlier in the service, enter, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Did you hear what Jesus said? The way is hard. That leads to life. The Christian life, the path of obedience in Christ is not easy. It's hard. And, and few are going to go that way. Right? The world is going to go the easy way. They're going to take the main road, the easy path that leads to destruction. But few are going to walk that hard path, that narrow path. And there are temptations along the way on that path. There's temptations to take shortcuts to veer off that path and to follow the crowd. But there are no shortcuts we can take to receive what God's promised us. We have to walk the path that he's called us to, to walk. And they'll come in his own timing. First couple of years when we moved to Smithfield, uh, we started walking Windsor Castle Trail a lot, and we can walk there from our house and we had some friends with us one time, and we were walking, and there was an entrance that goes across the river, across the bridge, and I was still getting my feel for the, the park and the trail, and I thought I knew we were getting close to it, but I saw a shortcut through the woods that could get us home quicker. And so, those guys followed me. Trust me. We're gonna, we're, this will take us home quicker. We'll, we'll cut through the woods here. So the entrance is over here. We do the shortcut that takes us beyond the place where we need to go. And can we keep walking down the trail? And you know that feeling when you know you feel like you've gone too far. <laughs> you, get, you get that pit, uh, feeling in the pit of your stomach that you know you're wrong. And you've led the group astray, and you have, to, you have to own up to it. And we had to turn around and go back. Thankfully, Windsor Castle Park is not that huge of a park, so it didn't take us that long of a detour. But I tried to make a shortcut, and it was a shortcut, but it went to the wrong direction, the wrong destination. You see, David in this passage does three things that are immensely challenging for all believers. He shows restraint when he could have acted. 
He shows patience and waits for God's timing, God's vengeance, and he shows mercy when he could have shown justice. And so this morning, we're going to see David as our model, our great example, and how to follow after him. But we're also going to see how God himself in Christ does those three things perfectly for you and me. So Jesus himself calls us to walk this narrow path of faith, and it involves three challenges that we see in our text. First is the challenge to show restraint, the challenge of restraint. Secondly, the challenge of patience. And thirdly, the challenge of mercy. And our text is is divided in those three ways. So we'll see the challenge of restraint in verses 1 through 7. And let's go there first as we see what's taking place here with Saul and David. Well, as I said earlier, remember David escaped from Saul at the end of chapter 23. And says in verse 1, Saul returned from following the Philistines. He was told, behold, David's in the wilderness of En Gedi. Saul is always getting word about where David is. He has scouts seemingly everywhere. And he can go find David. He did. And so he takes 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and goes and seeks David in this place called the Wild Goats Rocks, sort of up in this mountainous area. And there's these sheepfolds sort of near these caves. And Saul goes in to relieve himself. As we say in our house, Saul is going potty. Okay. Literally in the Hebrew, it says he's covering his feet. Okay. So we can imagine, you know, what's going on. And just just as an aside, there's humor in Scripture. Okay. And this is a humorous. uh, He didn't have to say this, but he did. Right. He didn't have to reveal what Saul was up to. So David has this golden opportunity to catch his enemy with his pants down, literally. Now, this isn't the first time that the enemy of God's people has been caught with his pants down. If you remember in Judges chapter 3, this king called Eglon, it says he's a very fat man. And Ehud, the judge, comes in here and kills him while he is relieving himself in his bathroom. And he locks the door, and so none of his servants know what's going on. Often you see humor. God, God uses humor throughout Scripture, especially when it's to taunt our enemies. And so this couldn't be a more golden opportunity for David to end the chaos, to end the suffering, to eliminate his number one threat. Think about this. Chapter after chapter, scene after scene, David is being hounded by Saul, and he gets this opportunity to end it all. I mean, think how tempting this would have been to just kill Saul right then and there. And then what would have happened? He would have become king. He would have had no threat, no competition. It's that scene in many hero movies, right, where the hero has the chance to kill the villain. And we've seen it time and again where the villain tries to play the victim and say, oh, don't kill me. I'm self, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm helpless. And of course, the hero out of good goodwill uh, saves the villain and the villain tries to attack. But David, it's true, he's in a moral conundrum. His men want him to kill Saul. And so they are saying, this is the day the Lord's made. Isn't this, God has promised this to you, that you can take your enemy out. And so for David, this this is the moral conundrum. Is this God's providence for me to take advantage of? That's the question he's asking. God has arranged this meeting. Or is this a temptation? Is this a test that God is presenting me with? 
So for a second, let's appreciate the the difficulty of this situation. It's easy to read into the text and say, well, we know what we would have done. But in the moment, this this would be tough. And so what is playing into David's mind? Why can't he just kill Saul? Well, the first reason, and he gives us in the defense later, which we'll get to, is that Saul is anointed. He is anointed. So what does that mean? When you are anointed by God, you are set apart. right? You are set apart for a specific role, a specific office to fill for the Lord. So it would have been wrong for David to kill the anointed. He had been blessed by God, set apart, even with all the evil he's doing. He's still anointed. So that's why David withholds. The second, another reason, is the sixth commandment. Do not, you shall not murder. Right? If, if Saul was attacking him and he was, and he was fighting him in self-defense, he killed Saul. That's one thing. But he's defenseless. He's, he's, he's on the potty. Right? This, is, this, is, this would not be a just kill. Thirdly, it's the significance of God's vengeance. In Leviticus 19, God writes that we are not to avenge ourselves on our enemies. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so with those three ideas, this is clear revelation from God. You should not kill Saul. And he couldn't break God's law. You know, it's, it's in, in our lives, many times we're presented with situations where it seems so perfect to us to do something. God has, has arranged it in such a way, but it breaks God's word for us to act on this. Even if it makes sense to us, even if it made sense to David and his men to kill Saul, God's revelation, God's word said something different. You see, very often we want God's will, but we want it our way. We want it on our time frame. And that's the, wor- the way the world speaks. Have it your way, right? In our house, one of my kids loves to sing the Burger King song. BK, have it your way. Right? We, want it, we go to God often and we see life as sort of this like, order at a fast food restaurant where we want it exactly the way we want it, when we want it. We want it fast, we want it now. We want that big red easy button. However, David knew that God's will must be achieved in God's way. The means matter to God. The means as well as the ends matter to God. Have you ever been tempted with taking this kind of shortcut? Have you ever been tempted to take a shortcut in your growth as a Christian? Del Ralph Davis writes that we sometimes long to find a key or a major breakthrough or a decisive insight that will place our Christian living on some kind of higher plane where uh, we are almost always above hindrance and frustration and despair. Right, This one key, this one insight. And don't some Christians claim they've found the secret? Aren't many books out there that exclaim, if, if, if you follow these five steps as a Christian, you will unlock Right? Your Christian life, and you'll be above the hindrances you've, you've experienced. You'll be above frustrations. That will sell a lot of books, but it's not true. Change, for the, and I've said this before, change comes through the ordinary but powerful means of grace. What you're doing right now, coming to church, hearing the word preached, praising God, 
These are ordinary, but they're powerful. That's how God has designed us to change us, by his word and sacrament, by prayer and fellowship. The things we're most tempted to give up because they're ordinary. There's a book, I haven't read it, but I've heard of it. It's about Yosemite National Park, and it, it's kind of a morbid book because it, it details all the human deaths at Yosemite National Park, the way people have died, you know, falling off high cliffs and things like that. And do you know what the number one reason is that people die at Yosemite? The shortcut. They go off the trail, right? They go past the fence to try and get a cool selfie or to tell their friends what they did. It's the shortcut. And so what is David showing us? He's showing us restraint, but he's showing us also self-control. He has the ability to end his suffering in a way God has not ordained. And so he stops. Self-control is important for the Christian. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit, isn't it? And so there's a difference. When God has promised you something, there's a difference between seizing it and waiting for him to give it to you in his timing. Del Ralph Davis says, chapters 24, 25, and 26 show that the man after Yahweh's own heart does not seize the kingship Yahweh's promised, but he waits for it to be given to him. He doesn't seize it. You know, our Lord Jesus showed a similar kind of restraint in Matthew chapter 4, if, you'd want to, if you want to turn there. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 8. And Satan comes to him in in the desert, in the wilderness, and tempts him. On the third temptation, the devil, Satan, goes to Jesus, and it says the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to Jesus, All these I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. If you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Behold, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. What is, what is Satan tempting him with? He's saying, You can have all the glory now, Jesus. You don't have to wait for it. Take it now. And you can skip What? The pain, the cross, the suffering, death. That was, that was the, the cleverness in Satan's temptation. It's the cleverness he, he uses against us as well. You can have it now. It was something that was already promised Jesus. He was going to have glory and, and honor and fame. But he said, you can have it now if you just worship me. If you just bow down to me, you can skip it all. And Jesus didn't do it. He didn't do it. He didn't do it for you and me. He wanted to anoint you to be his heir. So don't miss the importance of what Jesus is doing in in that temptation scene. By saying no to Satan, he's saying yes to the cross. He's saying, I will take your pain, I will take this suffering, and I will wait for glory to come later. That is the restraint Jesus showed for you and for me. And so instead of cutting Saul down, 
David does what? He, he cuts off the corner of his robe. Look at verse 4. David rose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. This is an echo of what we read in chapter 15 in 1 Samuel, that when Samuel is walking away from Saul, Saul grabs his robe and it rips, which symbolized in Samuel's words, the kingdom being ripped away from Saul. This is another example of that. And, and, and David here feels bad because this is really an act of rebellion. He's telling, he's telling Saul, look, I'm cutting, I'm rebelling away from your kingdom, expressing his desire for Saul to be stripped of his office as king. That's the first challenge he faces, and that's the challenge of restraint. The second challenge is the challenge of patience, beginning in verse 8. This is when David uh, arises, Saul arises, and he calls after Saul, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? So what David is doing now is he's defending his, himself. He's saying, Look, men are telling you I'm trying to kill you. It's not true. Look, I have, a, I have a piece of your robe. I could have killed you, but I didn't. So he uses the robe, the piece, as proof that he could have killed him if he had wanted to. He said, but I spared you. And I said, I will not put my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. So what is the patience that, for what? What, what, is, what is the patience of David here? Well, it's the patience waiting for God's vengeance and justice. He knows what Saul has done. He knows that he's used Doeg to kill the priest. He knows that he's tried to kill him. He knows he's going to be judged. And he's willing to wait for God's vengeance. So in David's defense, I want to jump down to verse 11. Chapter 24, it says, See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there's no wrong or treason in my hand. I've not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. I want to focus in on the fact that he calls him father. Isn't that interesting? He calls this man who's trying to kill him father to give him deference, to to give him respect. And that's one of the, the ways, that's one of the challenges of a believer is to honor our parents. Not just our parents, but anyone in authority over us, especially when they're in the wrong. He showed Saul much deference and respect. And this is what the fifth commandment is all about. To honor father and mother. It wasn't just to honor father and mother, but that's to establish this authority principle in Israel, in the church, in the world, that we're to honor those who God's put in authority over us. Because it's God's authority. It's a representation of God's authority over us. And I wasn't going to go on this tangent, but because of Matt's prayer, which I thought was so well put, and being July 4th, we need to be reminded that we're under the authority of leaders as well, that God has put and established over us. No matter which party they represent, even if they represent the party that you do not align with. I mean, look at the respect David is showing Saul. Calling him father, not killing him, not going after him. So the next time you're around some people who are making fun of what Biden said or getting his words mixed up, which is often, instead of piling on, 
Pray for him. Pray for our president. I pray that he would know Christ. Right? Show respect to those who are in authority over us, even if you vehemently disagree with them. That's what we're called to do as Christians. And David is an example of that. This man is trying to take his life, but he, because he's the Lord's anointed, because he's in this office, this position, he's respecting him. And so let's go further into his defense. In verse 12, he says, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. It's so hard to let God be the judge and avenger. It feels so good, doesn't it, to get somebody back for what they've done to you. Right? To be that avenger, to bring vengeance and justice against somebody. It feels good. But there's a problem with our vengeance. It's often out of proportion. It's often excessive. Tim Keller writes in his book on forgiveness, he says, vengeance is always excessive, our vengeance. He says, that was the point of the lex talionis. Why did it say a tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye in the Old Testament law? Because vengeance for a knocked out tooth always wants more. It wants to knock out all the perpetrator's teeth. Vengeance tends not only to be disproportionate, but to be surrounded with hateful, caustic, cruel language that does not help the perpetrators repent. It only leads them to dig in and oppose all your efforts to put things right. The perpetrators rightly see you are not really after justice for their sake, or for the future victim's sake, or for truth's sake, or for God's sake. You're after vengeance for your sake. And you just want to inflict suffering on them. That's the problem with our vengeance. It's excessive. And so the law, we often think an eye for an eye being a little bit uh, over the top or mean. It was actually merciful compared to what vengeance can look like between human beings. And this is how daily conflict turns into all-out war. This is how daily conflict in your marriage can turn turn into all-out war. This is how daily conflict between my kids, right? When somebody steals a toy, what happens next? A broadside across the face, right? It's out of proportion, it's excessive, but that's how we're designed. If we're not being gracious and forgiving, we're going to be excessive in our, in our vengeance. And that's across all relationships. Daily conflict turns into all-out war when we take things, matters, into our own hands. So we're called to let God be the judge and the avenger. David is willing to wait on God's vengeance and not exact his own. It was just last week when we did Psalm 54, and there's a line in Psalm 54, verse 5, where basically the psalmist is calling on God to destroy the evildoers, to to take them out. Dale Ralph Davis commenting on that says, What is the psalmist doing? except what Scripture commands him to do, namely, committing vengeance to God. That we are right to call on justice, to call on God to act, because we're calling on Him to act, not ourselves. When we're so convinced of God's ability to avenge us, we don't need to do it ourselves. There's a story from the 17th century In Scotland, in 1661, the drunken parliament 
of Charles II sentenced James Guthrie, the Covenanter, Presbyterian preacher, to be hanged at the cross of Edinburgh, his head to be struck off and publicly displayed, his estate to be confiscated, his children declared incapable of all future days of holding any office, possessions, lands, or goods in the kingdom. Afterward, Guthrie's headless corpse was placed in a coffin and brought into the old Kirk Isle, where a number of highly respectable ladies prepared his body for burial. One gentleman present noticed that some of the ladies dipped their napkins in the blood of the martyr and accused them of performing a piece of popish superstition. One lady spoke up in defense and said, We intend not to abuse it to superstition or idolatry, but to hold that bloody napkin up to heaven with our address that the Lord would remember the innocent blood that is spilt. That is appealing to God's justice. When we leave justice, when we leave vengeance up to the Lord. And in Revelation chapter 6, we're given this vision of the saints, the martyrs in heaven who've died, who've had their blood spilled, and they're crying out to God, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Did you hear that? There's a number. When the last martyr is killed, that God will judge and avenge and will come back. That he will. He, he promises to come back. But until then, we're called to have patience and to wait upon the Lord. And you know, it was Jesus himself who showed the greatest level of patience. Right? The innocent, the perfect God-man held back his wrath. Even when his disciples wanted to bring wrath upon the people. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is walking with the disciples. He's with James and John. They're walking through Samaria. And he's not received by all the people of Samaria because his, fate was, his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Right? James and John wanted justice. James and John wanted a vengeance right then and there. They didn't want patience. And what does Jesus do? He turns and he rebukes them. In another scene, when Jesus is betrayed and when they come, the mob comes to take him away, it says a servant, this is uh, Matthew 26, a servant of Jesus put out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And this is what Jesus said, do you think? that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. What Jesus is saying, I could bring the whole armies of heaven against what's happening right now, but I'm going to the cross, and you're not going to stop it either. The patience of Christ is astounding. Jesus' patience led Him all the way to the cross, where even then He prayed for forgiveness for those who killed Him when He said, 
Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You see, the narrow path of Christ calls for patience, to wait on his justice and his vengeance, to trust in his timing. And it also calls us to be merciful, to to have patience and to be merciful. And that's the, the last challenge we see here in this passage, the challenge of mercy. Look at verse 16 and following with me. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you've repaid me good, where I've repaid you evil. And you've declared this day how you've dealt well with me, and that you didn't kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? And skipping down to the last verse, as Paul, as, as Saul and David depart, Saul asks him in verse 21 for a promise. He says, Swear to me, therefore by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of all my father's house. And David agrees. David agrees to spare Saul's descendants. But he didn't have to. He didn't have to. He did it out of mercy. And even from a political standpoint, it was probably wise that David didn't try to kill Saul and his descendants. Because often in Israel's history, or any history, if you kill your political rival, often you're the one that gets killed not too much later. But he showed him grace. He showed him mercy. And if grace is giving something to someone who doesn't deserve it, mercy is not giving someone something they do deserve. For instance, punishment for a crime. He's holding back. And notice in the last verse, Saul goes home, but David and his men go up to the stronghold. David goes back to his stronghold. He's not trusting Saul. Even if what Saul says, he's not trusting him. He's not dumb. Saul has shown his true colors. So things are still not going to be reconciled, even if he's showing mercy. But isn't it true we want justice for others, but often not for ourselves? It's so easy to want others to pay for what they've done, but let ourselves off the hook. I do that all the time. Instead, we need to show mercy to others and see how much we don't get what we deserve in life. That we don't get. Like we fall way far from our own standards and God's standards. We get better than we deserve. Mercy goes against our natural tendencies. Our natural tendency is to hold grudges. It's been said we live in a therapeutic age, that really what we're moving toward is this age of just feeling happy, feeling good about ourselves. That's the, only, uh, that's the only truth, ultimate truth these days. And there's even a movement to find forgiveness, forgiving someone, not for their sake or God's sake, but for your own peace. Forgiving someone because it makes you happy. Tim Keller writes, if forgiveness is all about making you happier, well, lots of people find that nursing a grudge is quite pleasurable, right? There's nothing about your inner peace or happiness that's going to hold you to forgive one another. But the gospel does that alone. And how are we going to have the ability to do that in the end? To restrain ourselves, to show mercy, to have patience. We need more than just an example in David. We need a substitute in David's greater son. 
So as I close, I just want to point you to David's greater son. David does a great job here. He's a great model. He's a great example. But he's not the ultimate picture. He's not the perfect one. We need the perfect one. Because we are not, not perfect. We're imperfect. And so you don't need David. You need his greater son. You need Jesus. And Jesus shows us mercy. He shows us patience. He shows us restraint by having all those things removed from him. He shows us mercy by having mercy removed from him on the cross. He took the justice that should have fallen on me and you. He showed restraint and he took the unhindered wrath of God on the cross. He showed patience and he withheld vengeance while the vengeance of God's anger fell on him. That is what the cross is all about. Jesus took the narrow path to give us the path of life. Are you struggling today with restraint and self-control? Are you struggling with patience and waiting on God's timing and God's justice and vengeance? Are you, waiting, are you struggling to wait? Are you struggling uh, to show mercy to other people? Are you trying to always exact justice? My answer to you is look to Christ who did it in your place, who did it perfectly, whose record is, is now yours by faith in Him. The narrow path calls for mercy and offers mercy in Christ. And mercy on this narrow path is the way to life, joy, and hope. And so my exhortation as I close is enter that narrow gate and find life. Let's pray. Father, we we're beset by many trials in this life. The narrow path is difficult. But we're thankful that Jesus walked it perfectly in our place. And that David so in many, many moments points to what Christ will do. As David looked forward to that, and as we look back to what Jesus has already done and finished on the cross, which gives us hope that that is our record. Christ's perfect obedience to the path of the cross is what saves us. Will that be our hope this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.